You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. My guest on this episode of The Spears, Captain Lindsay Heisler. Uh, she is a 2012 graduate of yes. West Point. Mm -hmm. And first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, and you're here back at West Point to, uh, to receive an award, the Ninager Award, which is an mm -hmm. award uh, for Valor at Arms that is sponsored by the Association of Graduates. So first of all, thanks for taking some time to talk to us. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. So you are a 2012 grad of West Point. Um, before we get into the story that you're going to tell, um, can you kind of talk about what drew you to West Point in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I actually, uh, I think the way I got here was a little different from how a lot of people get here. Um, I didn't have, you know, aspirations growing up at a young age to, to join the military. Uh, what I did do my, my entire life was play soccer. And so I, you know, on my club team, we would go to recruiting tournaments. And uh, after one weekend, my parents got an email from the coach from West Point asking if I wanted to come visit and, and potentially play here. Uh, so I went, I came up here for two weekends um, and saw, you know, shadowed a cadet through uh, all the classes they went to and the practices and the games and, and things like that. And I think after those two weekends, I kind of realized that West Point was an opportunity that I didn't want to pass up. Um, and if I, if I didn't take this opportunity, I would always look back on it wondering what if. Um, so I think it was, it was soccer that honestly got me here. And then once I got here, it was, you know, the army that kept me here. So four years at West Point, they get to branch night and you are told you're going to be an aviation officer. Mm -hmm. Is that what you wanted to do? It was, yeah, it was my first choice. It's pretty competitive. Yeah. Uh, I think yuckier is when I really started considering, you know, what branch I wanted to branch. And I realized that, you know, I think aviation, and again, I, I didn't know much about the Army at the time, but it seemed, you know, who, who would not want to fly helicopters, you know? So I think uh, knowing that or thinking that at the time, it really pushed me to, to try for aviation. And then I haven't regretted any of it since. So I've loved it. So then where'd you go when you left West Point? I went to Fort Rucker first. Uh, that's where we have our flight school um, for about a year and a half I was there and then uh, I PCS from there to Fort Campbell in uh, Kentucky for my platoon later time. Okay and what did you fly? I fly Apache helicopters. Is that what you wanted to fly? Yes. Okay so you're now a lieutenant and an Apache pilot. 
Um, and in 2015, you were deployed. Was that your first deployment? That was my first deployment. Yep. Okay. So when did you, when, when and where did you go? Uh, so in April 2015, we deployed for nine months to Bagram, Afghanistan. We left January of 2016. Okay. Um, so let's talk about that deployment. How was it? Mm-hmm. I, I think that was definitely one of the highlights of my career. Uh, you know, every, everyone who joins the Army, you know, you train in garrison in the garrison environment for so many years and, you know, so many different training exercises. Everybody wants the opportunity to deploy and actually, you know, do your job, you know, that you join the Army to do. And what unit were you with? I was with uh, 1st Battalion, 101st Aviation Regiment, Okay. Um, so specifically Alpha Company. Okay. And w- what, uh, what was the mission like during the deployment? Our mission was to, uh, <clears throat> you know, provide ground support for the the ground forces that were there at the time, and then at the at that point in time, you know, it, it was the counterinsurgency mission. So it was allowing the the ground force to, you know, uh, conduct their missions with their partners in Afghanistan as well, um, so that you know, whenever we left that country, they would be able to defend their country again the, against the terrorists at that time. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about uh, what day was it, the event that we're going to talk about? Uh, December 5th, December 2015. 5th, 2015, mm-hmm. okay. How long have you been in country by this time? At that point, it was eight months. Okay. So you've gotten into kind of a battle rhythm. You kind of know what you're what you're doing. Um, you've got, I guess, I presume, kind of a level of comfort with that. Um, yep. And what happened that day? Yeah, so we we got notification that there is a, a high-value target had been identified in uh, southeastern Afghanistan, um, in Paktika province. And you were at Bagram? I was at Bagram, okay. yes. Uh, so it was about a 45 minute flight from Bagram to where this high valley target was. Uh, and you know, this was just another mission that we had done for the previous eight months. It, it was nothing out of the ordinary. Um, I think the only thing that, that stuck out in our minds was it was right along the border to Pakistan towards the east. Other than that, you know, it was it was truly just what we had you know, gotten used to doing in the previous eight months. So um, once we got told that there is a high value target uh, <clears throat> in that target building, we, we took off shortly after. It was uh, two of my Apaches and then uh, four Chinooks from the 160th. And we escorted them um, to go infill the ground force to this target building. So they had, the Chinooks were carrying a ground force? Correct. Okay, yes. and you guys were essentially on an escort mission with yeah. them? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, so they successfully infilled the ground force, um, and then we stayed overhead to provide follow-on uh, air support to the ground force. Um, the Chinooks left to go essentially wait for the call to, to come pick them up. Okay. So we were overhead um, close to six hours by the time they called for, for exfil. How long can an Apache stay stay up? Mm, so typically it's about three hours uh-huh. of station time before we have to leave, go refuel, and come back. Okay, so you had done that. Correct, so you'd gone yes. to refuel. Did you mm-hmm. have to go all the way back to Bagram to refuel? No, we, we refueled at uh, Fob Chapman, which is in Coast. Mm-hmm. So that's probably about 20 minutes or something like that. So it was a lot closer. Okay. What's it like when you're, so you're just up sort of circling? above them at that time? Yeah, essentially. How um, high? It'll be anywhere from about 500 feet above the ground to 1,500 feet. How connect, so in that window. How connected to the ground force do you feel? Um, you know, can you see them down below? Do you feel mm-hmm. like kind of an, an, an integral part of this mission or do you f- kind of feel like, you oh, know, we're just a separate thing that they'll call if they need? 
Yeah, we're, we're absolutely right there with them. Um, our job is to know where the friendlies are at all times, and that way we can essentially watch their six, you know. Uh, so the first thing we, we do once we get on station anywhere is ask for the friendly location, and we get eyes on them, you know, ensure that we are visual their location, and that way we can provide air support in the event they need it because we ideally our situational awareness should match their situational awareness. Okay. So are you in pretty constant contact with the ground yes. force? Yeah, 100% all the time we're in, we're in communication with them. So you're talking to them, you're kind of circling up. Um, on one hand, you're waiting in case they need something, right? But are, what else are you doing up there? We're, we're looking ahead of them. We're scanning you know, where they're going, where mm -hmm. they're going to be, and that way we can give them a heads up on what they might encounter or what we're seeing, because we have a different vantage point being up yeah. high. We can see a lot more than they can. Sure. So they'll they'll have us, you know, oftentimes it's one sensor from one of the Apaches uh, in a defensive posture around the ground force, and then the other one is more offensive looking, you know, maybe a K in front of them to see what they might encounter. Had you worked with this team before? This particular team, yes, we had. Okay. Mm -hmm. Does that help? Does it change? I mean, is that, do you get better? Uh, does that sort of synchronization get better the more you've worked with a particular ground force? Yeah, absolutely. Um, is, even with the, the crews for the Chinooks from the 160th, you know, we, we saw them every time we flew. So we, we knew them personally at that point. And uh, it allowed us to develop a relationship. And, you know, once you work together for eight months, you, you're going you're gonna to know what to expect from, from each yeah. team, you know. So um, I think that was actually a great point for or a great thing to have for that mission. Sure. Uh, okay, so what happens next? Um, so probably about two hours after uh, we dropped the ground force off, we identified a uh, enemy fighting position towards the uh, the west of the of the target building. Um, this was, you know, on the base of the mountains that were we had, we had mountains surrounding this target building. You know, to the north, to the west, and to the south. Uh, in this valley and then towards the east into Pakistan was open desert. So essentially we were surrounded by high ground okay. and the ground force was, which puts them in a kind of a precarious sure. spot. Um, so we identified this enemy fighting position towards the west. Uh, it looks like they were observing the friendlies from where they were. Um, we, we let the ground force know and then they immediately essentially gave us clearance to engage. Um, so we engaged this fighting position um, and, and that that's just the, the start of the, the night. You know, I think that typically happens pretty often throughout the deployment, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so that was just the first engagement of the night, and it it wasn't too anything that was too out of the ordinary. So this is all happening at night. Correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. So th this is really interesting to me because obviously you've got uh, Afghan fighters who know that they're overmatched in terms of technology, firepower, um, and for the most part in terms of night vision. Uh, you can see them clearly. What mm -hmm. what, is, what are sort of the 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 telltale marks of of a, a, an enemy fighting position? What does it look like from from your vantage point? Yeah. Uh, so obviously, you know, our friendly forces will be in uniforms that we recognize. They'll have equipment that looks like sophisticated equipment. The the ground force they look completely. I'm sorry. The uh, the enemy force they'll look completely different um, because of what they wear. Uh, and then they don't have the equipment that, that we do. Like you said, they don't have the ability to see at night, whereas, you know, our friendly forces have night vision goggles and 
and all sorts of equipment like that. So it, it's... So you can see the weapons, though. Yes. How yep. close do you have to be to kind of positively ID, like, and know for sure that this is actually, you know, a bunch of fighters, not some shepherds out camping on the hillside? For a small weapon like a AK-47, you know, that they are an RPG, which they often had, probably within three kilometers is where you... I, ideally, you want to be inside of two kilometers, but, you know, you can probably PID a weapon like that at, a, at night, you know, two to three K. Okay. But they can hear you from that far away, yes, right? they can hear um, us. Mm-hmm. Did you notice, I mean, was it, did they typically, once they could hear the sound of your aircraft coming in, did they just sort of pop smoke because they don't want anything to do with that? Or did they, were they confident that you weren't going to see them? They know that they know what a Chinook sounds like. They know what Apaches sound like. Terrorists are smart. You yeah. know, they've adapted over 15 years at that point in time. It had been, you know, almost 15 years of conflict. Mm-hmm. So they, they absolutely picked up on, you know, Chinooks flew inbound, dropped off a ground force, and then the rotors that, or the rotor noise that they could hear after the Chinooks left were Apaches. So mm-hmm. they knew that they were there. I think they probably thought that we couldn't see them. Okay. Um, because they were focused on the ground force. They didn't really... They weren't really looking at us. They sure. knew that they knew that we were there because they could hear us. Sure. But um, I don't think they they thought that we were. Really they clearly weren't them. afraid enough to to leave. To run. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so you let the ground force uh, know that these guys are there, and then what happens? So after that, uh, they gave us clearance to fire. We both Apaches overhead. We engaged them with thirty millimeter that we have on board. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, what is it, what do you typically, what's the armament look like on an Apache mm-hmm. typically? You've got the 30 millimeter cannon. Yep. We have the 30 millimeter, then we have rockets mm-hmm. and we have Hellfire missiles. Okay. So you engage with the 30 millimeter. Correct. Mm-hmm. And then what? Um, after that, you know, the, the ground force continued on with their mission at the target building that they're at and we continue to just provide air support for them. So that, you know, that was just a quick engagement that happened prior to uh the rest of the mission that you know where everything kind of went crazy so let's talk Uh, about that when did things go crazy that happened so it was getting close to sunrise and um it's more advantageous like we've talked about for us to fly at night and for the ground force to operate at night so the ground force commander called for exfil of his forces back to the fob and uh so at this point we have the ground force in PZ posture, which is where, you know, they set up close to where the Chinooks are going to land um, <clears throat> in a defensive position so that they can minimize the amount of time that the Chinooks will be, you know, essentially sitting ducks on the ground. Sure. Uh, while they're in PZ posture, they started taking indirect fire from in some location to the north. They didn't really know where. Um, so after we heard that, or after they told us that they were receiving indirect fire, uh, we immediately shifted our sensors to the north to, you know, begin scanning for targets up there. I I identified a enemy fighting position, um, a six-man team um, concealed by the tree line that was, you know, on the base of the, the mountains that were up to the north. How far away is this from where they're waiting for the Chinooks? This was probably about two kilometers, maybe okay. one to two kilometers, okay. somewhere in there. Um, and we immediately got clearance to engage. Was this where the, the was it rockets or, or mortars? This w- the, for the enemy? Yeah, the, the indirect fire that was coming in. It is, was this where mortars, it was com- yeah. is this where it was coming in from? Correct. Okay. Yes. Uh, so we imme- immediately engaged them after they gave us clearance to fire. 
um, and that essentially cleared the the valley for the Chinooks to come inbound for uh, exfil of the ground force. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so the, the Chinooks are inbound uh, probably within a minute out of landing. We're still overhead conducting security for the ground force that's you know vulnerable in their defensive posture. And then once the Chinooks are you know seconds out from landing, suddenly we see you know curtains of enemy fire originating from 360 degrees around the the valley. Um, <clears throat> this includes you know high ground from the mountains, and also it, you know we have heavy machine gun fire coming from collat structures on the east side of the the border from inside of Pakistan, um, and it, it was truly you know bullets flying from every, every angle that that you could see. Uh, you know, I had never seen anything like it before. I know none of the pilots who were there had seen any, anything like it before. Um, what did it look like? <clears throat> it looks, I, I picture, you know, in like Star Wars where you have, you picture like laser beams, sure. you know? Um, it, it looks like that, you know, under your, your night vision goggles, it, it really accentuates any any light that you see. And sure. so there were, there were tracers of enemy fire everywhere. Yeah. All direct fire. Correct. Yep. Okay. All direct fire. So what do you do? At that point, um, our instincts kicked in and it was, I don't think we really, th we weren't thinking really, we just acted because that's all we knew to do. You know, anywhere we saw enemy fire originating from, we shot back because that's what our training told us to do. We knew that we were there to make sure the, the ground forest and the Chinooks got out of there safely. So I don't remember thinking a lot. You know, we just we were just pulling the trigger because that's that's what we knew that we had to do to make sure that they got out of there. What are you firing? The thirty millimeter? Thirty millimeter. Um, yeah. can you kind of you know, to the extent that maybe it's possible for, for listeners, can you kind of try to situate yourself there you said it's kind of coming from 360 degrees are you in the center of this circle are you considerably higher than all these guys if some of them are firing from up on the mountains are some of mm -hmm. them up close to your height i think so the the highest point that the fire was coming from was probably uh probably just slightly lower than where we were okay so higher than the ground force higher than the chinooks on the ground but a little bit lower than what we were um and we were, you know, doing circles around the, the Chinooks on the ground and the, the ground force. Um, so we were pretty, we were in the middle of it. Um, and any, anywhere we saw fire from, we flew to that direction to draw fire to our Apaches rather than the ground force on the ground. And it's still dark back. at this time. Yes. It's still dark is, uh, and there's, it's you, but there's also another Apache, right? Correct. Yep. How much coordination is there between the two of you? you know, letting each other know where you see fire coming from, who's going to take it. Are, are you constantly talking or is it just sort of, have you guys worked with this, uh, these other pilots mm -hmm. so often that you just kind of work well together? What does it look like? Yeah. I think during the entire mission, you know, we're constantly communicating. Um, when that incident happened, when the Chinooks finally came inbound to pick the ground force up, I think our instincts kicked on and we knew that we're kind of in a, you know, survival mode at that point. Um, so we have this saying called aviate, navigate, communicate, essentially meaning you 
fly your aircraft first, make sure that you're not gonna crash or that you engage the enemy where they need to be engaged. Um, and then you navigate, you figure out where you need to go second, and then you communicate third. So that night, especially well, after the Chinooks were on the ground pinned down by enemy fire with the ground force, we knew that first and foremost, we had to aviate and protect our aircraft on the ground and the ground force inside of them. So we, more so than communicated with each other, we just shot at any enemy that we could identify on the ground. Um, we, we knew that we weren't gonna have a midair between us because we were deconflicted by a predetermined altitude. Oh, really? So, yeah, so we had, you know, 300 feet of separation between us at all times. Are you higher or lower? Is your is your aircraft? I was I was a higher bird. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's what I was going to say. Is this seems like it's you know, it's a big space, but it's not that big, and and right. and Apaches mm-hmm. are are pretty big. That yeah. would be the concern, I think, that you'd have a midair collision, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so, anytime we we plan a mission or we go through our team briefs prior to taking off, we always brief. You know, I'm going to be at 500 feet. You're going to be at a thousand feet. Okay. And and that way, we always know that if something crazy happens, at least we know that we're not going to hit each other because we've talked about this in sure. advance. Um, so this, when everything kind of lights up and as you said, goes or went crazy, were the Chinooks on the ground yet? They were within 20 seconds from hitting the ground. So did they still land when that happened? They still landed. Uh, the ground force still got picked up by the Chinooks. Um, we had to make sure that we kept the enemy's heads down because sure. You know, Chinooks are huge aircraft. They're bigger, a lot bigger than yep. the Apache, and there's multiple of them, so they're big targets. So we had to make sure that we kept the enemy's heads down so that the ground force had enough time to get in there, and then the Chinooks had enough time to take off. So who threw it? When all this is happening, you said that there's some coordination between you, the two Apaches. Are you also talking to the ground force? Yes. Are you mm-hmm. also talking to the Chinooks? Yes. And are you also talking to higher headquarters? Uh, we could talk to higher headquarters at that point, but um, we weren't at that time because they, they knew what our mission was. Um, at Once we leave the, the FOB, typically it's it's our mission at that, sure. at that point. It's our fight. Okay. So we weren't talking to them as this was happening. But happening. even these three kind of parallel conversations with the Chinooks, with the ground force, mm-hmm. and with each other, is that do – you, do you ever feel overwhelmed? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely can be overwhelming. Um, and I think at this particular instance, when we started hearing from the Chinooks that they were taking rounds and sustaining battle damage, and when we heard from our wingman that they also thought that they took rounds because they were having hydraulic issues in the aircraft, uh, at that point it did get overwhelming in the sense that we didn't know if everybody was going to make it out of there. Um, so our response, you know, we just did the only thing we knew how to do and that was to shoot back at the enemy um what does it feel like when when you see you see a weapon system open up so you fly there to try to attract their fire and to return fire um are you are you aware of whether or not you're you're hitting them whether or not you're quieting one of the firing positions or are you just is it a quick gun run and then on to the next thing and not really looking back it was it was very quick because of the amount of fire that was in that valley. We couldn't confirm whether or not we had good effects on the target. We just 
suppressed that location, engaged the enemy, saw that they that the fire stops from that point, and then moved on to the next one. So we never verified, you know, how many enemy there truly were. Uh, we just knew that they appeared to be everywhere in that valley, um, and so it, it was very quick. Has there been an estimate of how many how many enemy fighters there were involved? So yes, so after we landed, uh, we had the capability to rewatch our tape. Sure. Um, and so we had an ISR aircraft overhead, at you know several thousand feet above us um, that night. And from that altitude, you have a picture of the entire valley. So the crew of that aircraft said that they identified eight Dishka fighting positions oh. that night. Um, and so, and we didn't realize it at the time because they hid their heavy machine guns very well from us. Um, but once they knew that the Chinooks were inbound and they heard the, the rotor systems, you know, they get all their heavy machine guns ready, hoping to, to shoot down a Chinook. So, uh, that, that's the estimate that we got from the ISR aircraft overhead after the, uh, the mission. And from the time that it all kicked off until, um, you guys essentially leave was how long total? Yeah, so that'll happen probably under three minutes. Yeah. Did it feel like three minutes? It it felt a lot longer just because we knew that some people had the, the there was a chance that not everybody would make it back that night, um, just because of the amount of enemy firepower. And I guess when you have that thought, or when I had that thought in my mind at that time, it it kind of slowed every everything down. You're hoping that, and you're hoping and praying that. No, nobody comes over the radio saying that, you know, people have been shot and, and things like that. So I think that knowing that people might not make it, it definitely slowed everything down and made it seem like a lot longer than three minutes. Is it, um, it's a lot of responsibility. I mean, that, that sense of responsibility. Did you, do you feel that in the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Especially knowing the, the people you work with. And honestly, it's, it's ingrained in you from the time you, first flying Apache, you know, your mission is to protect the ground force that you're flying with. So from day one, you know that your job is to make sure that the ground force gets out of there alive. So how does an engagement like this end? Um, you kind of talked about how it started, um, mm -hmm. but you get word from the Chinooks that said, hey, we're clear. And then, and then what happens? Do you guys just get out of there as quick as possible? Once the ground force were all inside of the Chinooks. They left as soon as they could. So once we kept the or kept the enemy's heads down long enough for them to have a window, and the ground force, you know, were all inside of the Chinooks. They took off out of there as quickly as they could, and then we followed them out. So we we didn't stay behind to see, you know, or confirm or deny, uh, you know, engagements that we had. We just left with them because. They knew that they had to get out of there. You, so you're essentially going to then escort them back. Mm -hmm. Did you go yes. back to Bagram? We went back to Coast, Fob Chapman, mm -hmm. because all of our aircraft took damage, or most of them did. Um, so we, we landed at the nearest Fob, and that way we could assess the damage before we left back to Bagram. How far is, is Chapman from this engagement area? It's probably about a 20-minute flight. So you talked about the adrenaline. Um, mm -hmm. which I can't imagine uh, that you must be feeling at that time. When do you come down from that? Do you come down the moment that you sort of get clear of that area or is it not till you're on the ground? It wasn't until we, we were on the ground because we still had the possibility that, 
you know, if an aircraft took enough battle damage to where their rotor systems had problems back in route, they might crash there. So once we've all landed on the ground safely, I think that's when we finally knew that we were okay. If you had told uh, yourself in 2012 when you were commissioning, going to become an aviation officer, um, that you were going to face something like this, Obviously, you, you hadn't undergone any of the aviation training yet, so you wouldn't have felt like you would have been prepared. But if you mm -hmm. ask yourself that sort of once a year, was there any point in your career where, where if somebody said, hey, right now you're going to go up on a mission and you're going to face this, would you have felt ready for it? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, yes, and I say that because we were confident in our training, in our preparation leading up to the deployment, and the number of times that we had flown that aircraft prior to that night. I think, yes, we, we would have confidently said, um, we can employ this Apache how it's supposed to and take the fight to the enemies of the United States. Which says something about army training then, if right? If I mean, cause that's the goal. It's um, to never, you know, they say, the idea behind training is that you never put somebody, a soldier in a, in a, in a situation that they haven't faced before, haven't felt like they've faced before. Um, so that's good, especially when you're talking about big, complicated machines like uh, like the Apache. Um, can, can I add something? Yeah. Um, so I, for Army training, I think it's not, maybe not everybody can feel that way when they, um, when they get charged with, you know, a job or a duty, they might not feel prepared. But I think that's, that's your job as a leader, right? It's as if you're a platoon leader, which I know a lot of the firsties are about to be. Um, it, it's their job to make sure that their platoon is prepared for something like that. Or, you know, further on down the line, if you're a company commander, it's your job to make sure that your company is prepared, you know, so that if they're asked that question, are you ready for this? They, they can confidently say, yes, we're ready. So it's a, it's a training thing that made you feel confident, but also it sounds like a leadership thing. Like your yes. leaders must have mm -hmm. done, yeah. taken the right steps and done the right things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you fly back to coast, uh, to coast and, and then how long are you there before you go back to Barlow? We stayed the night there. You did? Yeah, we did, yeah. Because um, we had reports to write up for that mission. We had to assess the battle damage on our aircraft. And at that point, um, it was probably 7 in the morning, which is uh, beyond the number of hours that we're, we're supposed to be working to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we stayed there the night and then left for Bagram the next day. And... When did you, when was your next mission? How, like, what was your battle rhythm during the course of the deployment? Are you going out daily? Or are you going out, you know, every third day? Within the company, we were going out daily. That doesn't necessarily mean that, like, me myself would go out there every night. But out of a seven-day week, I'd probably fly six to, five to six times during a week. So do you remember the, every the, night? do you remember the very next time that you went out? No, I don't. Really? I can't say I do, actually. Um, did it change? I mean, did you feel differently like each time after that, that you got into an aircraft, like maybe more confident or maybe a little bit kind of sobered by the reality of, of what mm -hmm. can happen anytime you, you, you get up in the air? Yeah, I think probably a little bit of both. I think because everybody made it back safely, uh, you know, we, we felt confident that we could do what we needed to do in the event that we had to do our job like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, we were this close to losing somebody. So um, it was very humbling experience. You know, we, it had been eight months at that point in time without um, any 
aircraft incidents, you know, but we were this close to, to having one or losing someone on the ground. Uh, so it, it was very humbling. And the rest of the deployment, you were there for about another, did you say about another, another month? month or so. Um, yeah. And the rest of the deployment went smoothly? It did, yeah. Nothing at least mm-hmm. of, of this magnitude? Yeah, no, nothing of that magnitude. Um, do you think back about it very often? I I think we did after, like in the uh, in the month after maybe, uh, a couple months after. But since then, you know, I don't think we think about it too often because at the end of the day, we, we're just doing our job, you know, that we're supposed to do. So we, we consider it, you know, we were out there to do a job and luckily we were able to do it that day or that night. And so I you talked to me or, or the team that was with me that night and we don't think that we did anything heroic or anything we just did our job you know so i i don't think we dwell on it or we've talked about it a lot since then did you talk to the uh chinook air crew and the ground force afterwards we did yeah the the next i think it was the next few days um we watched the the tapes of the videos together and that's when the the crew of the isr aircraft overhead at that time said that there were eight uh, disco fighting positions that they had identified after watching the tape. So it, it actually took probably a few days before we realized the amount of firepower that was actually out there. Why do you watch the tape? What's the, like, what are you trying to get from it when you watch it? You learn something every time you watch a tape. Um, we, we do it after almost every mission. You know, we, we go back with the entire team, debrief uh, with the tape in front of us, see what we could have done better, what we did well. Uh, so it, it was a routine, you know, and you learn something every time you do it. So that's why we did it. Sure. Well, Captain Heisler, thanks so much for joining us. It's, it's, a, it's a great story, and I think, uh, I think listeners will really enjoy, uh, enjoy hearing it. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.